Well, the unofficial launch of summer is just a week away with Memorial Day weekend. Uh, It's a time when the rhythm of life changes uh, for many of us here in the Midwest. Uh, We're out of school or our kids are out of school. Uh, We may travel. We may take a vacation or go camping. Uh, We may work in our garden, enjoy the sunshine, sit on our deck or our patio in the evening. In the summer season, we're also the uh, we're, we're more inclined to be out among our towns villages that are represented in in our church family here with an opportunity to mix with all kinds of people, whether it's at the company picnic or a neighborhood garage sale, a little league game, maybe a swim meet, even a summer wedding. So in order to prepare us, uh, better prepare us and equip us for the uh, season ahead, we're going to spend the next four weeks talking about becoming good neighbors. We'll discover God's command to love our neighbors lies at the core of his plan for our lives. And over the next month, we're going to see that love is an attitude that's expressed in action. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit for simple, practical help in making room and space in our lives for the people that God's already placed around us as we learn to become good neighbors. And my hope is that as we join Jesus in the work that he's already doing, we're going to grow personally and spiritually. Uh, We'll uh, be people that will discover a, a greater sense of joy and peace and purpose, and that our church family will begin to look more like Jesus himself. So let's pray to those ends. Lord, we're grateful that at the start of this brand new week, You've enabled us to be together, reasonably sound minds and healthy enough bodies to gather together in a, in a place that we uh, uh, can call our own. And for these simple but great gifts, Lord, we're, we're thankful. We pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. May the blessings and benefits of your name, Yahweh, as you reveal yourself uh, through the pages of Scripture and in history, may they grow larger in our life. May your kingdom come, may your will be done right here among us. Lord, right next door as our vineyard kids are learning and growing and worshiping. Each one of us, Lord, bring your kingdom in our lives in the ways that you know we need. Put power on your word to our lives today in your name. Amen. It's often said today that people are overwhelmed with choices When you grocery shop at Kroger, Hy-Vee, or Schnucks, uh, you can select from 50,000 different items. At Walmart or Target, you have to wade through 36 brands of toothpaste to find your own. And did you know that when you go to buy a car in the United States, you actually have 64 different uh, brands of automobile from which to choose? Heck, at lunch, I get paralyzed when I go down to Arby's over here. Do I get the regular roast beef, the prime cut chicken, the ultimate Angus, the Reuben, the beef and cheddar, the French dip, the roast turkey ranch and bacon wrap, a market fresh sandwich, or a crispy chicken farmhouse salad? I just freeze at the counter. Our basic Comcast cable package at home, basic cable package has 900 channels. 32 of them are music alone. We have more time-saving devices than any generation in human history, 
And yet many of us feel as, as if we have less and less time to get everything done, don't we? It's estimated that the average adult in the United States views or hears approximately 300 branded advertising messages and makes thousands of decisions, albeit many small, every day. We live at warp speed. Many of us have become really champion multitaskers. It's no wonder, friends, that we are exhausted and overwhelmed. Now, I'm not going to launch this series of messages by saying that we just need to slow down and smell the proverbial roses. But I will begin by saying what I told our our launch team in the year leading up to the planting of this church. Life's hard. Church shouldn't be. We really do believe that one of the jobs of the church family is to simplify, simmer down and simplify Stay focused on helping us do a few of the right things well. That's the job of the church. Now, I'm not implying that we should be naively simplistic about life. I'm not advocating a return to the 1850s like our Amish friends have done. But neither do do we want to add to your present stress and tension with programs for discipleship, marriage, and family, and evangelism complete with homework, prescribing strict regimens of disciplines of the faith and growing personally through Scripture memory and outlining the Bible, practicing the disciplines, attending three church services a week plus small group, and then not to mention serving in a ministry and volunteering in the community piled on top of work, school, life, and doing grocery shopping and doing the laundry. Because that just makes me exhausted. I want to... Help keep things simple, doing a few of the right things well. Personally, I'm a fan of irreducible simplicity. Now, don't let those words scare you, but I love them. It just means drilling things down to the simplest level, the lowest common denominator. And so I like to think in terms of how can I best help people follow Jesus and find real life? the real life that he said he offers to all people. How can we do that as we head into summer without adding to the complexity that we already all feel? Now, interestingly, there was one occasion where Jesus was asked to reduce everything into one command. Jesus was a fan of irreducible simplicity as well. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you're going to want to open to Mark's Gospel, the 12th chapter. Here in this story, a Pharisee who was an expert in the religious law attempted to draw Jesus into a debate about which of the commandments in the law of Moses was most important. The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders uh, had a tendency to argue among themselves as to which commands were weightier or more important, or lesser, lighter, less important. And so this this, uh, uh, lawyer was attempting to draw Jesus into the current raging religious debate. Uh, Now let's read Jesus' answer in Mark 12, verse 29. The most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor 
as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So Jesus replied to the lawyer's question, not with one, but with two equally important commands. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, historically in the church, this teaching has been referred to as the great commandment. Love God, love others. But do you really think it can be that simple? Well, Jesus was a genius, smartest man who ever lived. And really, this is the whole plan of God in irreducible simplicity. This is the entire Bible drilled down to its simplest form. When Jesus was asked to reduce everything to the one important commandment, he gave us this profoundly simple and powerful instruction, the great commandment. And this commandment, think about it with me this way, if it was actually acted upon by everyone who says they believe in Jesus, would change the whole world. Wouldn't it? Think about it. No bitterness, no unforgiveness, no revenge, no jealousy, no envy, no fear, no hatred, no murder, no war, no injustice, no oppression, no ethnic tension, no racial strife, no sexism, no ageism. If we really loved God and loved our neighbor, everyone would choose to be patient and kind and humble, would, re- would rejoice with truth, would always be hopeful, always enduring. Mm-hmm. Friends, God's command to love him and to love our neighbors lies at the core of his plan for humanity. And this is what we want to lean into in the next four weeks together. Now, unless we think that this is just some like isolated text that, that got celebrated through history or is one among many other equals in the, in the New Testament, let me, um, show you, suggest to you that every other author of the New Testament, with the exception of Jude, agrees with the preeminence of this statement by Jesus. The Apostle Paul repeats in Galatians uh, 5.14, for the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's letter to the church at, at, at Corinth, he encouraged them to love with these often quoted words. If I could speak with the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I'd be only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I could understand all of God's secret plans and I possessed all knowledge and had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I'd be nothing. If I gave everything I had to the poor and even sacrificed my body and I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 of his letter, he says, most important of all. What do you think that means? Most important of all, right? Continue to show Deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. 
the Apostle John, 1 John 3, uh, verse 11, chapter 4, 7 and 8. He said, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Dear friends, let's continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then there's James, the Lord's brother, who writes in his letter to to the churches uh, that were scattered in the second chapter, verse 8. Yes, indeed, it's good when you obey the royal law as found in the scripture, quote, love your neighbor as yourself, end quote. Now, I may be slow, but I'm not stupid. It just seems to me that the message is simple and compellingly clear that we've got to learn how to love. We might have notebooks full of notes. We may have outlined the the missionary journeys of Paul. We may have the major themes of the Bible committed to memory. But all of that, while it has value, is of little value if we're not actually learning how to love people. Now, Jesus told one particularly memorable story to illustrate his appeal to love your neighbor. It's found in Luke's Gospel, the 10th chapter. You're going to want to open there as we read what has been called the parable of the Good Samaritan. No doubt you've heard this story at some time in the past, and it has stuck in your gray matter because that's the way parables are designed to work. You hear them once, and they stay with you forever. Let's revisit the passage beginning in Luke 10, verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the the occasion, again, was a trick question, attempting to draw Jesus into a religious debate. The, the, law, the lawyer was not asking, uh, how do I go to heaven when I die? The thought would have been foreign to his worldview. Rather, he was asking, Jesus, how do I get the kind of life that you've been talking about? God's kind of life, eternal life, kingdom life. Then as often as he did, Jesus answered the lawyer's question by asking another question. Have you noticed that about the Lord? Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How how do you read it? Verse 27, the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the expert in the law knew the Old Testament scriptures well. He gave the right answer. Jesus said, right, do this and you'll live. It's my conviction that Jesus had delivered this message on other occasions. Pastors, teachers, they share the same sermon on on different occasions. No doubt Jesus had been asked this question before, and he always replied the same way in every case, with an appeal to the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And and, and he reiterated what the Jews call the Shema, It's a quote from the book of Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, verses four and five, where the text reads, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And then the lawyer added appropriately a quote from the 19th chapter of the book of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. And these two texts together 
are now known as the Great Commands. They form the centerpiece of Jesus' instruction on how to experience real life, God's kind of life, eternal life. Love God, love your neighbor. Two sides of the same coin. You cannot love God without loving your neighbor. Having heard Jesus answer this question before, the lawyer answered correctly. But then the text goes on to give us insight into the lawyer's motives. In verse 29, the man wanted to justify his actions, and so he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Now, perhaps the lawyer felt a little slighted by Jesus' answer, you know, thinking, that just seems like too simple. It couldn't really be that easy, could it? Or maybe he was still wrestling with, with the question of like, well, hey, if Jesus and I agree then why does his lifestyle still make me feel so uncomfortable? Or maybe he was looking for a loophole. He was a lawyer, after all. Wanting to define neighbor in such a way that he personally could not be found blameworthy. You know, if neighbor was simply somebody that he could choose at will, because we all like to hang with people that are like ourselves, right? Uh, then he'd be okay. He's off the hook. He'd not feel guilty by Jesus' response. But likely, he was already sensing some internal sense of conflict and incongruity. And so he wanted to justify his current lifestyle. And so he asked the question, well, who's my neighbor? Never anticipating Jesus' reply. Well, let's read the balance of the story. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho and was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. A Jewish man, beaten by thieves, left for dead on the side of the road. Both the priest and the temple assistant crossed the other side of the road, passed right on by. Now, these religious leaders and workers should have done better. After all, they continually prided themselves in always doing the right thing in the eyes of God and others. But you know what? They had other things to do. They had schedules to keep. They had worship services to oversee and attend. And they had agendas that couldn't be flexed. And Jesus' point in the story is that they obviously failed the test. They were not neighbors. And then the story took a shocking turn when Jesus introduced the hero of the story to be the Samaritan. Now, understanding the context is particularly helpful. 
for several hundred years now, animosity between the Jews and their neighboring Samaritans, who were despised, uh, particularly by the Jews, as racial half-breeds. Hostility between the two cultures was growing. And this racial prejudice had now spilled over into religious and social intolerance as well. By the time Jesus arrived, the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans was so heated that it had exploded into several episodes of very serious violence uh, and and murder between the two groups of people, well documented by secular historians. And in a small way, uh, if you can remember, those of us who are old enough, or those of you who have read history, the, the racial tension between blacks and whites in the United States in the early 60s explosive and divisive. It would give you a a, a glimpse, perhaps, of the kind of tension that undergirded this story. But here is a good Samaritan crossing strict social and cultural, religious, and even racial boundaries. He took a colossal risk, treated the man's uh, injuries, his wounds, transported him to a local inn, spent the evening administering care, paid the bill with a promise of future reimbursement. And so Jesus is challenging the Jews' negative, prejudiced stereotype of Samaritans as he cast the Samaritan as the hero of the story. He's making the point that loving one's neighbor must transcend every boundary, racial, social, religious, and uh, cultural. The Samaritan was the true neighbor. So when the lawyer asked, you know, well, who is my neighbor? Uh, Who am I supposed to love like myself? It was no coincidence that Jesus picked the Samaritan. Why? Because Jews would have never looked at their Samaritan neighbors as their neighbor. Rather than answering the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus asked, who was a neighbor? And the lawyer, drawn into the story emotionally, quickly blurted out the answer correctly. Yeah, it's the one who showed mercy. It was the Samaritan. And Jesus said, yes, I got you. Well, he didn't say, I got you. But in the saying of yes, he, 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 the, the parable functioned in exactly the way it was meant to be. It drew him in. He made a correct observation. And then Jesus says, yes, now be a neighbor. Be a neighbor by crossing cultural and religious and racial and social boundaries in acts of love and mercy and compassion. Now, it's not just the profession of the clergy or church employees that Jesus is identifying as having failed in the story. Trust me, parenthetically, we do fail. We often do, the clergy and church employees. In some way, that's why there's 22,000 Christian denominations, because the leaders of those things can't get their act together, quite honestly. And I I can say that because I am one. (laughs) But it's not just the clergy or paid religious professionals that that don't do the right thing. It's it's any person of privilege who has an us-them mentality. It's people who judge someone else as less than themselves. Uh, it, it's any of us who categorize other groups or cultures or races of people as unworthy of dignity and respect, help, and kindness. 
It's people who have too many things to do, who have schedules to keep, who have worship services to attend and administrate, and agendas that can't be flexed. It's you and me. When on the way to church this morning, uh, we simply drive past a broken-down car on the side of the road whose occupants are African-American, and we're uncomfortable. It's you and me. When we ignore the needs of the Indian family in the apartment right next door to us because... Well, you know, we don't want to get involved, or we can't understand their their English, or we just don't like the way their cooking smells. It's you and me when we don't want to assist the Latino husband of a co-worker or a classmate because he or she is uh, he is without health care because he's undocumented. It's you and me when we just don't have the time or energy or the chutzpah to help uh, the white family in the house right next door to us because we think, well, they're just lazy. It's you and me. It's me when I don't wave hello or goodbye to the Muslim family two doors down from me because I've already judged them as unfriendly. The priest and the Levite are all of us, is the point I'm making. They represent a worldview that Jesus is challenging in this simple but powerful story. He was teaching the audience, that their concept of a neighbor had to include people that they didn't like or didn't have time and space for. That's why he used the Samaritan. And then he turned the whole story upside down by saying, be a neighbor. The question isn't, who is your neighbor? The question is, are you going to be a neighbor? Now that story, simple, drilled down to its irreducible simplicity, is darn challenging, isn't it, for every single one of us today? And we're going to spend the next three weeks unpacking the implications of what Jesus meant when he encouraged us to become good neighbors. Now, there are times that I just wish people who asked Jesus questions had never opened their big mouths. Because now that the lawyer did, you and I are without excuse. I cannot plead ignorance as to who my neighbor is. Because of Jesus' answer, I have some hard work to do. With the help of the Holy Spirit, I've got to expose and then excavate those hidden, unseen roots and then the visible fruit of a lack of compassion for people. It was so much easier if I just hadn't heard what he said. I have to go beyond my comfort zone. I have to suspend my insecurities and prejudices. And I have to actually begin to love and serve my neighbors that in some ways I'd really rather not. And I don't think... Any longer we can hide behind our metaphoric neighbor. That is to say, you know, the wounded enemy that's lying by the side of the road whom actually none of us ever really see. And now I'm commanded to actually be a neighbor to everyone. It's a call to action. It's a call to actually become a neighbor. And you know what? To me, Jesus is actually encouraging me to love those nearest me as in my literal neighbors. And maybe that's the challenge for some of you in these next three or four weeks. Your literal neighbors, Saeed and Sabah, Tande, and Bob and Sonny right next door. Now I'll finish with this point, among many that we'll make here in the next weeks to come. The story of the Good Samaritan contains dozens and dozens of lessons. Now, now, as in most parables, don't 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 fish for the details that aren't there. What do the two silver coins mean? You know, 
Jesus never intended the parables to, to, to be at that level. Now, if God speaks to you about the two coins, great, go for it. But, but in general, the parables are designed by God to teach us one significant life-changing lesson. There are many uh, other sub-lessons we'll apply. But, but one thing clearly emerges uh, upon a simple reading of the text today, and that's the story stresses the importance of action. That's why I titled my message, my message today, Love is a Verb. Verbs are part of speech that convey action and occurrence. Nouns and pronouns, for those of you who have long forgotten these lessons from your eighth grade English class, nouns describe people, places, and things. Verbs describe action or occurrence. I mowed my yard yesterday. Skyler graduated from high school. Joy attends Peoria Christian. Mark enjoys listening to music. Hey, the action and, and occurrence. Jesus teaches love is a verb. It's an attitude that's expressed in action. It's not enough to think about love and compassion. Meditate on the principle of being a neighbor to blog about it, or post a picture on Facebook or Instagram about it, or even share your thoughts and opinions in a table filled with your friends or in a week or two when you reconvene your small group. You see, the Samaritan did not simply mind his own business, which we're often frequent to do. Rather, he took a risk. He sacrificed his well-being. He was willing to be inconvenienced. He made an investment of time and energy and money in order to show love to his literal neighbor. We have to actually do something. That's the point of the teaching. We must be proactive. That's going to be God's nudge to us this summer, in the summer season ahead. If we shrink behind the risk and dangers of breaking the cultural and religious and and racial and social boundaries, if we make comfort and well-being and personal happiness the top of our priority list, if we cave to insecurity and fear, uh, if we want to just like mind our own business, if we think that we just have too many other things to do, we have schedules to keep and worship services and small groups and, and church picnics to attend, and we have inflexible life, schedules, and agendas, then we will become or persist to be the priest and the temple worker who fail in our attempt to actually hear God and follow Jesus as authentic disciples who love him and love others, who do the simplest, most basic things. We won't experience real life. Now, in the three weeks to come, we're going to continue to unpack this story and ask the Holy Spirit for simple, practical help in becoming good neighbors and actually loving the people that God has placed all around us in this summer season. I, I like how Vineyard pastor and author Jay Pathak sums it up really well in his recently released book called The Art of Neighboring. And he says it this way, Jesus said the most important thing that we can do is love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourself. 
This simple plan offers us a different kind of life. It's a way of living that makes sense and brings peace to people's souls. Whenever we center our lives around the great commandment and take very literally the idea and practice of loving our neighbor, there's great freedom, peace, and depth of relationships that come to our lives. By becoming good neighbors, we become who we're supposed to be. And as a result, our communities become the places that God intended them to be. Lord, I I just thank you for these very simple but powerful and compelling instructions that you as our Lord uh, gave us to love you and to love others. We, we at times, Lord, uh, think we're doing pretty good, and then we take a closer look and we realize we've all got a long ways to go to being people who actually live out the simplest, most drilled-down set of instructions from you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to be people who actually live out the great commandment. The one thing you said is the most important. Cause us, Lord, in our individual lives and families and our church family to be people, men and women and children, who actually do what you've challenged us to do. We're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit to overcome our fear, our insecurity, our lack of proactivity, our laziness, our judgmental paradigms of life, our our own minding our own business and our seeking our own comfort and happiness and a thousand other excuses. Lord, we're going to, we're going to need your help. And so we thank you that this isn't a self-improvement program, but it's allowing the person of the Holy Spirit who already lives in us to fully follow you. So thank you in advance for what you want to do. And now, Lord, as we offer our, our hearts and hands and, uh, to you in song and in the offering, we just say we pray that you would receive these gifts for what they are, tokens that we want our life to fully count for you. Through these, Lord, we say we love you. Amen.